So our, our scripture tonight is out of Luke chapter 6, but I'm going to take a couple minutes getting there. And the scriptures we're looking at tonight, the passage is called the Sermon on the Plain. That's part of the Sermon on the Plain. It's very similar, runs parallel to a message uh, that Jesus delivered in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. Some believe it's a different telling of the same message. I personally believe that this is Jesus' go-to message. He was an itinerant preacher. He would go from town to town, and, and this was the message that he spoke, and he gave it many times. The subject is the kingdom of heaven. So to me, there's the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Mount, and there probably would have been the Sermon by the Lake and the Sermon in the Town and the Sermon in the City, whatever, and many others. But we have these two recorded for us, Matthew chapter 5 and, and in Luke, the one we'll visit tonight, the Sermon on the Plain. So what is the point, or why does Jesus give this message? Well, in Luke 17, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of heaven come? And they're probably still thinking that Jesus is coming to kick the Romans out of of Israel, and he's coming to deliver the nation. They still did not understand his role as the suffering servant, the Lamb of God. he's, He's come to take away the sins of the world. But he answered them in Luke chapter 17, verse 20, he says, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Those who are ruled by the king are the citizens of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is here now. Those who are ruled by or subject to or followers of the king, Jesus Christ. If Jesus is your Lord, your king, your savior, you are a citizen of heaven. What do subjects of the kingdom look like? My wife, for most of her life, was a Canadian citizen. Recently, she became an American citizen. Now, what about her changed when she became an American citizen? I mean, Canadians look a lot like Americans. They watch the same TV shows, they eat the same food, for the most part. Well, now she follows different laws, a different constitution. What do the subjects of the kingdom, the citizens of the king or believers look like? What does it look like to be a true Christian? What would we call the marks of a true Christian? That is what the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, his go-to message was. When the Lord hides Moses in the cleft and he passes by, what we see is not what glory looks like. We get a character study. It tells us of his character. Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, this, this, his, he passes by, has his hand over the cleft, and it says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, mercy, keeping mercy for thousands, giving iniquity and transgression, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The afterglow, if you will, is a character study on who God the Father is. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this All will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. What will Christians look like is not an appearance in a sense of looks. Being a Christian, Jesus gives us a character study. In the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Mount, what he is describing is the character of a Christian, citizens of heaven, his followers, the ones whom he rules over. These things set us apart. Now, in a broad sense, there are other characteristics that would include or will be included in the life of a Christian. Certainly repentance. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Along with repentance would be included humility. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Along with repentance and humility, it would include living for God's glory and not your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Along with repentance and humility and living for God's glory, we would include prayer. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. With repentance, humility, living for God's glory and prayer, we would include living separated from the world. James 4, 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John two fifteen, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So repentance, humility, living for God's glory, prayer, living separate from the world, bearing fruit. Jesus described the parable of sower, Matthew 13, 23. But he who received the seed in the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, sixty and thirty. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. But the greatest characteristic of all these things that a Christian should bear is love. 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And then these words are familiar to us and yet distant when our hearts are cold and hard and unloving. Our love should be manifested in love for God. Matthew 22, verse 37, when asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. In Mark 12, he adds, all your strength. Love for believers. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, you shall also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Love for the lost. Those who still love the world, those who are still caught up in the world, don't know that they're trapped. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Jesus doesn't love the world system. He doesn't love the economics. He doesn't love the politics. He loves the people. But I'd like to zero in on this passage in Luke in chapter 6, verse 27, for tonight for our study. Because what it looks like to be a, a, a citizen of heaven, there are some tough areas for us. Not that those are easy, but there are some harder issues, I think, for us to deal with. So Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, 
But I say to you who hear. So before we actually get into this passage, we have to understand that there are those who hear and that those who don't. Later, he's going to give a comparison of two houses. Their outward appearance seems to look the same, but one is built on the foundation of sand and one is built on a rock, an unchanging, solid foundation. If you look ahead at verse 47, same chapter, he says, whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, I show you who he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing, that is, they heard and they did not respond, is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Notice that the circumstances are the same, both houses. Trials come to both, to those who are believers and those who are not, those who are followers and obey and those who don't. But to those who did not listen to the kingdom message, who do not build their life on the truth of Jesus Christ, they are destined for ruin. And the ruin of the house is great. I remember a phrase my mom used to say to me, when she would say something important for emphasis, she would say, did you hear me? Now she was not asking if I heard her. (laughs) I think we know that she was asking if I was going to obey her. And I think that's what Jesus is implying here. We, we must not just be listeners privately entertained by what Jesus says in James, we read what is often in my prayers, uh, James 1 be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. That is the idea that Jesus is communicating here. He he equates hearing with listening and obeying, doing. Citizens of the kingdom hear and obey. But I say to you who hear, those who are obeying, listening, love your enemies. Now the expanded message that is in Matthew's version of this Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. That's the world's idea of love. Love the lovely, love those who love you, hate those who hate you or who disagree. Stalin wrote that he had no greater pleasure than to plan for his enemy's death, execute the plan, and then go on living about his life peaceably. We aren't allowed that thought process. That's not healthy for us. We don't know what's going on in the circumstances in their life, in their heart, the trials that they face in their lives. We cannot understand the deceptions that they have been fed from our mutual enemy. I have read, for instance, that the North Koreans believe that life in America is far worse than it is in North Korea. They have been taught, they have videos, uh, propaganda videos, they believe that they show these videos that uh, Americans are is so poverty-stricken that there are no wild pigeons, cats, rats, or dogs on the streets because we are so poor that we catch them and eat them. Now, that's what they've been fed for 30, 40 years. What do you think they think about Americans? For some, they have this picture of the Old Testament. 
the Old Testament God, the God who hates, and the New Testament God who loves. And the two are contrasted. Do you know that God's heart has always been one of grace and love? He has always had love for strangers and love for enemies. I'll throw a few verses out here for you. This is the Old Testament angry God. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Exodus 23, verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you want to refrain from helping it, you surely shall help him with it. Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. That's the verse that is familiar to us. Paul quotes it in chapter 12 of Romans. He expands on it. And I want to read this because I think it lays out the idea here that we have no wiggle room. Romans 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, there are two schools of thought on this, and I have to confess that I have often or for a long time been in the wrong school. To me, this verse for a long time meant it's kind of like killing them with kindness. I'm going to be so nice to them, it's going to eat them up. It's going to burn them up like pouring coals on them. That's vengeance. It's what we're forbidden to do. That's right in the text. Repay no evil for evil. Don't give place for vengeance. It's mine, says the Lord. Do not overcome, don't, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can't interpret it that way. It's in the context. There's considerable research done on this too, if you actually look for it, <laughs> which I avoided to my own embarrassment. But fire takes some labor to produce, right? I mean, think back two, three, four thousand years. Rubbing sticks together it sounds, you know, kind of, we make it kind of romanticize that, but that's hard work. And so if your fire went out, you would want hot coals from someone else, and that would be a blessing to you. And they would actually go around in a small town, and they would put coals in a pot, and the way they would carry these pots is they'd wrap a cloth around their head and set the pot on their head. And so it literally is a blessing. You're giving them coals, you're blessing them by putting coals in this pot. And I just didn't want to believe that. He is telling us not to seek vengeance of any kind. You can't go there in your heart. You can't love your enemy and seek vengeance. You can't love your enemy and hate them. You have to love your enemy and seek his best. Do this for someone, and it's a real blessing. Don't seek vengeance of any kind, but instead win them over. And then they won't be your enemy. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. So he's saying do something that benefits them. He's not speaking here of Hollywood love, the feelings-driven love, the 
something you fall into or out of. It's a volitional decision. Choose instead to love them. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Jesus expands this idea. Again, he's giving us no wiggle room. There's no way around this. He's addressing really the matter of the heart. If our attitude really is, hey, I'm being nice to you on the outside, but inside, I'm strangling you. (laughs) That is not love. It is not acceptable. And it will come out in some other way. It will fester. And you will you will give place in your life for wrath or anger or vengeance. It's a matter of the heart. David had prayers for his enemies. Psalm 3, Lord, break their teeth. That's a prayer we're not allowed to pray for our enemies. And I don't think that's what Jesus is directing here. (laughs) Love them. Pray for God to bless them. That God may just do the unexpected and make them your friends. He may make them brothers and sisters. Let me poke a sensitive area. Are you a Trump hater? Are you a Biden hater? Is that allowed? Are you plotting evil in your heart? You think that God will break their teeth? Were you praying that God would make them fail? Or are you praying that God would genuinely bless them? Verse 29, to him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. Now, this verse has been kind of tortured to mean that Christians should not defend themselves, they should not defend their families, and Christians cannot be soldiers, etc. Jesus is not saying that evil should not be resisted. Jesus himself made a whip of cords, flushed out the money changers from the temple courts. There was a time to do something about that. David, a man after God's own heart, was a warrior. In Luke chapter 3, soldiers approached John the Baptist. In Luke 3, verse 14, and they asked, what should we do? And so he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. In Luke 7, we read of a Roman centurion. Jesus blessed this man's house. In those cases, he does not tell them, give up being a soldier because it's not right. Jesus is going to command his followers to take up the sword. What he is saying is people are going to mistreat you. And you're going to suffer wrongfully. But you must resist the desire for vengeance. They may be striking you, but they are really trying to get at me. That's what he's saying. In John 18, the trial before the high priest... One of those present slapped him. Literally. He does not retaliate. He takes it for the team. He takes it for the message. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. In Matthew's gospel, he adds, if they ask you to go a mile, go with them too. We read in Exodus chapter 22 and in Deuteronomy 24, It says that if anyone borrows a cloak, he must return it by sunset because you need it to sleep. It's considered a violation of your rights. You need a a cloak or a tunic or something to sleep with. 
It's about demanding your rights. For the sake of the gospel, don't demand your rights. The idea is be generous for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. That's what citizens of the kingdom look like. Be generous to those even who want to take your rights away. Taking what is justly yours, those who want to treat you unjustly. Now, in our current environment, that probably cuts pretty deep, doesn't it? I do not believe personally that the followers of Jesus are to form a political party and go fight for our rights. We live in this awkward place. We live in a democracy, and we have the right to make our voices heard, our opinions heard. We can vote. But when things don't go our way, should we storm the Capitol? During the period in in January 6th, on whatever you want to call that, riots, insurrection, overthrow, whatever, there was a man standing there, saw it with my own eyes, holding a sign, John 3.16. I thought, Lord, help us. I think we're called to bless our nation, bless those who curse us and spitefully use us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we have this very unpopular verse. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffer wrongfully. For what credit is it if you are beaten for your faults and take it patiently, But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. It gets worse. For to this you were called to suffer unjustly. We are called to that. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. We are called to something that is higher, something that is otherworldly. What if instead people saw us praying and serving others? I think we'd break their hearts. Jesus was punished unjustly. He bore your sin. He bore my sin. Did he fight for his rights? Did he call down legions of angels? We say we want justice. Justice is you and I die for our own sins. That's justice. That's what we deserve. We don't want justice. We want mercy. Mercy is unearned, undeserved, unmerited. We must give mercy and be merciful. That's what a citizen of heaven looks like. I realize this is unpopular, even in my own heart. I know this goes against what I feel often gutturally when I see the world around me. 
but I'm called to something higher. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks you. It is assumed that this is in regard to lending. We are commanded not to charge usury or excessive interest. The idea here must also mean a legitimate need. Since lazy, uh, being lazy and, and a profitable lifestyle is also forbidden. The idea here being the, the need is legitimate. Whether the recipient can pay back the loan or not, that is not the deciding factor. Banks are not known for being friendly for this reason. Christians should be. A bank takes money from others, and they loan it to those who don't need it. <laughs> and banks don't own any money. You realize that. They own your money. They have your money. They borrow money and the, from those who deposit it, and they loan it to people who can pay it back, and then they make a profit. Give to everyone who asks you. Simply put, be generous. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now, this could be the case of outright theft. The idea, again, is not to take things into our own hands. Count it as something given to the kingdom. We're not to have a tight grip on the things of this world. We must watch that we don't become covetous, greedy, hoarders. And under no circumstance are we to seek revenge or some kind of payback. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Give to everyone who asks you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. A version of this is in the rabbinic literature, even at the time of Christ. The great Rabbi Hillel wrote, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Confucius wrote, Do not impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. The Greek philosopher Isocrates said, do not to others that which angers you when they do it to you. Do you notice the difference in their statements and Jesus? You can live your whole life and do nothing to anyone else and fulfill that commandment. Do nothing to anyone else. They require you to do literally nothing. Jesus says, do something to and for others. The worldly philosophers, the world focuses on self, self-love, self-protection. Jesus says, do to others, love them, treat them, act on their behalf. They still may never do it to you. That is irrelevant. He did not say, do unto others when they do it to you, or do unto others hoping they will do it to you, or do unto others and they will likewise do that to you. That would be nice, but that's not our motive. To me, the interesting thing is that that's how God loves me. He sent his son to die for 
my sins, your sins, when I was not asking for it. And he did this thing regardless of my response to him. He did this for me knowing that I could never repay him. That I might choose not to receive this free gift. So we're to do it unto others as we would have them do to us. No mixed motives. Just do it. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. All of these actions are self-serving. Love those who love you back. Do good to those who do good to you. Loan to those who can reciprocate. Not just pay you back, that would be the purpose of the loan, but the idea is that you loan to others who can loan you money. Your mother Teresa once was asked, why is there poverty? And she said, there's poverty because there's greed. We should not be known by our greed. We should be known by our generosity. Love the lovely, love the lovable. That's what I call or we've nicknamed the Hollywood love. I love you as long as I get what I want. I give to you as long as I get something in return. Real love is other-centered. Love those who can do nothing for you. Find those who have no means to help you in any way. Love them. Love your enemies. Verse 35, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Let me repeat that. He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Are you, am I, kind to unthankful and evil people? No. But that's what we're called to do. Because God is that way, and we're to reflect his character as citizens of his kingdom. And truth be told, haven't we all been there before? Unthankful and evil. I don't know what your thoughts are when you let them run wild. I know what mine are. They're evil. I have to keep them in check all the time. Am I always thankful? Do I even need to confess that? (laughs) I know my heart. God did not save me because I was thankful or because I was good. Quite the contrary. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Like I said earlier, we, we say we want justice when it's others, but we want mercy personally. We need to be filled with mercy. Leave the justice up to one who can judge righteously. Righteously. 
That is what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like. That's the picture that we're supposed to model for the world. Now, as I close, (laughs) am I anywhere near that? No. And I dare say probably, the Lord has probably spoken to all of you as well. There's places in all of our hearts where we have just held back and said, you know what? I want my rights. I can't be that generous. I, you don't know the situation I've been in. That vengeance is really justified. Whatever it is, the Lord doesn't give us the right to do that. And he gave us the perfect example in all those opportunities that he didn't take to show us that's how he wants us to represent him. We're to be imitators of God. Others will see not what we look like externally, but they're going to see our character. And they're going to know we're different. They're going to see our love when we shouldn't be loving. Our patience when we shouldn't be patient. Our grace and forgiveness when we shouldn't be or we normally wouldn't be. Others will know we are followers of Jesus Christ by our conduct, by my conduct, that we are children of the Most High. So let's be hearers and doers. Amen? Okay. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that I know there are times where messages are just tough. And I don't speak here from a position of having attained all of these things, but I know they're true and I know they're right. And I pray, Lord, you would help me and help all of us as we hear these things and as you speak to our hearts and you do the surgery that needs to be done to make us more like you. I pray, Lord, that you would do that surgery. We give you permission. Whatever it is, whatever we want to hold back, Lord, we give it to you. And that tonight would be a marker in our lives. We just plant that marker. Today, I'm going to be obedient in that area. For the sake of the kingdom, for you, Lord. And I know there's lots of unspoken needs here tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would meet every need because you've promised us that. We can always come to you, come to your throne of grace to receive help in time of need, and we need your help. So we ask your blessings. We ask all these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.